If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Rob Attar, the magazine's editor. Today's interview is with Sir Max Hastings, the journalist and military historian who's the author of numerous best-selling books. His latest is Chastise, The Dam Buster's Story, 1943, which explores the iconic World War II RAF raid that was immortalised in a 1955 film. I paid a visit to Max in his London home a little while back to find out more. Now before we begin, I should mention that this interview does include a couple of mentions of a highly offensive racial slur, which was a code word during the operation, as well as being the name of Wing Commander Guy Gibson's dog, as some of you may already be aware. Where did the idea to attack the dams come from in the first place? Well, of course, all our views about the whole dams raid uh, come from the movie. And in the movie, it's Barnes Wallace who thinks of this idea. And in fact, the RAF had figured out as far back as 1937-38 that if it was possible to destroy the Ruhr industry's water supplies, then this would strike a devastating blow at power, at mines, at um, at absolutely the heart of Nazi industry. So they knew they wanted to do it, but they couldn't think how because they did all sorts of calculations. And they calculated that they were going to need probably about 15 or 20 tonnes of explosives placed against the dam to have any chance of, of blowing it up. But, of course, they hadn't got an aircraft that could possibly carry anything of that weight. And that situation continued with Sir Charles Portal, who in 1940 was CNC Bomber Command, and then at the end of the year became head of the RAF, constantly saying, we must attack the Mona Dam, because the Mona uh, was always known to be uh, at the heart of of the Ruhr water supplies. Um, But they still couldn't think how to do it. And Barnes Wallace, at that stage, he was thinking about destroying dams, but he was thinking about destroying them with earthquake bombs, huge bombs of at least 10 tons, which would drive deep in the earth or deep in the water and um, create an earthquake effect. But um, again, not only did no 10-ton bomb exist, but no aircraft capable of carrying it. But then two things happened. It so often happens that people... Uh, have the same idea in different places. And on the one hand, Barnes-Wallace, um, early in 1942, started to think about the idea of bouncing a charge across the water. And also, other boffins, as they were as they were then called, scientists and engineers, um, encouraged by the RAF, who'd been working on this question of how do you possibly break these down, they started experimenting with models and also with a dam in Wales uh, that they'd bought uh, for experiment. And a very bright man called Arthur Collins, who worked for the Road Research Laboratory, he discovered by experiments that if you placed the charge right up against the dam wall, um, 
a much smaller charge could actually break the dam than if you exploded even 10 feet or 20 feet away. Um, so Arthur Collins figured out that maybe he thought about six or 7,000 pounds of explosive might do the business. But yes, an Avro Lancaster, the new heavy bomber, might be able to carry that. But how did you deliver that huge charge right up against the damn wall? And of course, here, um, Collins's research uh, married with that of Barnes Wallace. And Barnes Wallace said, I believe that we can get a big depth charge, which is what it really was, rather than a bomber of mine. We can bounce it across the water over the torpedo nets guard, guarding the dams. And if we can bounce it over the water, then we may be able to get a big enough charge to the dam to explode it. But the next problem, of course, was how did you find the men who were capable of delivering a bomb with that accuracy? And I've often argued in my books that we use the, the word hero uh, much too promiscuously. And we call everybody who was in the war now a hero. And I only use the word hero very sparingly. But I do think it's right to use the word heroes of these young aircrew who were recruited to the newly formed 617 Squadron to attack the dams of Germany, who were asked, first of all, they were asked to do something very difficult, to drop um, one of these bouncing bombs from a height of 150 feet, which is pretty low, 50 yards. You think how far 50 yards is. And they were asked to fly a heavy bomber, not a fighter, a nimble fighter, but a heavy bomber at 150 feet straight and level towards the dam, in the case of the Mona, with anti-aircraft guns shooting at them. And then Barnes Wallace discovers, only a month, five weeks before the raid, he finds that if you drop the bomb from 150 feet, that um, it shatters on impact, that the shock of hitting the water is too great. He concludes that the only hope of uh, making this bomb do what he wants it to do is to drop it from a height of 60 feet, 20 yards, less than the length of a cricket pitch. And he then says to Wing Commander Guy Gibson, the 24-year-old who's been asked to um, lead 617 Squadron, can you drop it from 60 feet? Well, actually, it was a monstrously unfair thing to ask of these guys that heavy bombers... Heavy bombers are like sort of people carriers. They're not designed to, they're not Lamborghinis. They're not um, like fighters, which are designed to be incredibly nimble. They're great galumphing load carriers. And to ask Guy Gibson to do this, it was a sort of wildly unreasonable thing to do. But this was the middle of a war. And these young men, Guy Gibson was, and he had already shown himself in, in over 100 missions to be an incredibly brave pilot. Gibson, he seemed to thrive on stress. He'd just finished the tour of operations commanding another squadron in which he'd led some of the um, riskiest missions, the squadron of flight. He was very tired. He was um, not in, in physically very good shape. He got terrible pains in his feet, which were obviously stress-related. And all the time uh, when he was in the air, he was suffering the pain from his feet. Um, he had an unhappy marriage uh, to an older showgirl. Um, the only living creature whom he really seemed to love and with whom he really seemed to have a relationship was his Labrador, which, of course, had this wildly politically incorrect name, Nigger, which I'm often asked, is it embarrassing to use the name Nigger? Now, and I say, look, this is a historical narrative. They did things differently then. It's embarrassing to face the fact that 100 years ago, military deserters were shot and homosexuals were sent to prison. 
And um, so you just have to recognize this is what they did then. But Nigger was the most important living creature in Guy Gibson's life. But he was an incredibly brave young man, absolutely committed to what he was doing. Very remarkable and interesting young man. He'd had a terrible personal history, very unhappy childhood. And um, mother became an alcoholic. Father was off at the other end of the world. Uh, but he'd suffered all kinds of miseries. And Christmas Eve, 1939, his mother, when drunk, stumbled into an electric fire and set fire to her dress and died of terrible burns after that. What does the effect does that have on that young man? Um, so he had plenty of demons. But Gibson was a man who was prepared to do anything in pursuit of doing, yeah, that word duty was something very, very real to that generation. And I find it incredibly moving now when people almost laugh when you mention the word duty. But Guy Gibson and the men he led, they had an incredibly powerful sense of duty. And so when Gibson was asked, can your guys fly at 60 feet, straight and level, um, to drop Barnes Wallace's amazing bombs, codenamed Upkeep, against the German dams, he said yes. Um, and that is what they went ahead and did. And I find, even though I've been living with this story all my life, and I hate to think how many times I've seen the movie, I, I suppose I've probably seen the Dambusters film probably about 100 times in my life, and yet one is still ceaselessly moved by the courage of these young men. These were kids who, in our own times, they'd still be in their gap year, or at most at uni. Uh, and yet there they were, night after night, flying over Germany. And the lengths to which they went to fulfill their duty, to, to do what they were told was vital to winning the war, I find incredibly moving. And how far do you think the, the whole raid success was down to the genius and single-mindedness of Barnes Wallace? Barnes Wallace was the man who showed the RAF a means by which it was possible to do what they wanted to do since 1937-38 up to break these dams. Like many geniuses, and he was a genius, a very remarkable man. I read a lot about him in the book because he's such an interesting human being. I've said, even if he hadn't broken the dams, he was a fascinating man who designed airships, who'd, who'd had an extraordinary life, immensely sympathetic, lovable um, difficult, irascible, obsessive. But Barnes Wallace showed the RAF how this might be done. But where both Sir Charles Portal, the head of the RAF, and Wallace were wrong was they didn't think nearly hard enough about the limitations. They could, both men independently convinced themselves that if they could break the Mona, that this was going to strike a devastating blow at German industry. But actually, the experts at the Ministry of Economic Warfare warned them early in 42. They said, um, you ought to know that the key to the Ruhr water supplies are two dams, the Mona and the Sorpe, 10 miles away. If you can break both, then you will strike an absolutely devastating German industry. If you only break one, then it's going to be an inconvenience to the Germans and, and not a disaster. And they knew that. And I can't help blanching a bit at the cynicism that those young airmen, when they set out on Operation Chastise to break the dams, they were told that if they succeeded, if they survived all these risks, which killed nearly half of them who attacked, um, they could shorten the war. And actually, the experts have been telling them all along that um, breaking 
the, the motor alone um, was not going to do the business. They knew that the Sorpi, the Mona was a masonry dam, and everybody knew that um, Barnes Wallace's weapons were likely to prove very effective against a masonry dam. The Sorpi was a great earthen dam, and they knew you couldn't bounce a bomb towards it because it had a sloping face. And also, it was such an enormous bit of construction that even Wallace, at his most optimistic, he thought that four or five of his bombs, if they were dropped, might do the business. But really, I've said in the book, I don't think there was ever more than a 20% chance of breaching the Sorpi with Barnes Wallace's bombs. But by that stage, by the time they faced the fact that what they were almost certainly going to be able to achieve was to make a hell of a mess um, in northwest Germany and to cause the Germans a lot of embarrassment and inconvenience, uh, they were not likely to strike the decisive blow that both Barnes Wallace and Charles Porter were looking for. But by that point, the squadron was trained, the bombs of huge industrial effort and technological effort had been put into creating these bombs. And they knew that even breaching the Mona was going to be a spectacular. And the key thing, I'm, one of the things I always try to do in my books, I write about the human dimension of people who did it, what happened to them. But I'm also trying to put it in the context of the big picture. And in 1943, the British people were pretty tired. Their, our reputation in the eyes of the Americans still pretty low. That all right, the Battle of El Alamein in the desert had been won a few months earlier. But basically, since 1939, the British army had not had a very brilliant record. It had suffered countless defeats. Everybody could see that the tide of the war was turning. But they could also see that the Russians were doing most of the heavy lifting of defeating the German army. So there was a desperate need for what Churchill, um, I've often um, said that Churchill understood the need for what I call military theatre. He needed, even if you couldn't do big things like launch D-Day, you could at least do things that had a spectacular effect. And one thing Charles Portal thoroughly understood as the head of the RAF was that if 617 Squadron could break the Mona down, and they chose as their secondary target the Ada Dam, which actually had nothing at all to do with the rural water system, but was another masonry dam, then it was going to be an incredible spectacular, which was going to lift the prestige of Britain in the United States, where at that time it stood pretty low. And I would say that it was a fair calculation. Yes, everybody told each other a lot of fibs before the raid about the scale of this, but I think if I'd been sitting where Charles Portal was sitting in 1943, desperate for some spectacular successes, then I would have thought that it was a fair gamble. Uh, in fact, his exact words, he, uh, Portal said in one of his papers before the dams raid, this looks like a good gamble. And I think it, it was, but it was still, we should never underrate what you were asking these kids to do. But these very young men, you were asking them to do something fantastically dangerous. And for instance, normally bomber raids took place, you flew at 20,000 feet over Germany in a huge um, stream of aircraft. In this case, because the only way they had a hope of seeing enough to be able to attack the downs was in moonlight. In moonlight, bomber command never operated because the Germans could see you so easily. So that night of May the 16th, 1943, no other bomber command um, aircraft were operating over Germany. It was just 617 Squadron. And they made the calculation that the only way they had a hope of getting there was to fly all the way at deck level. But deck level, to fly at 60 or 100 feet all the way, 
your biggest risk is power cables. Not only not only have you got anti-aircraft guns on the ground, but you've also got power cable. And the anti-aircraft gunners can hear you coming even before they see you. And they're firing at practically point-blank range. And it is not surprising that three of those aircraft of, of the 19 that took off for the damned were destroyed by power cables or by such like, plus uh, more shot down by flak. And what is miraculous is that enough got through to the dams, flying across Germany at deck level, to be able to break the Mona and the Ada. So it was an extraordinary feat. But, I mean, Bomber Command, it was thought pretty awful that a lot of Bomber Command raids, they lost 5%. That meant one aircraft in 20. But since the crew had to complete 30 trips to complete a tour, in the spring of 43, only one crew in five in Bomber Command was completing a tour of operations. I mean, this is amazing. The odds were you were going to die rather than complete a tour of operations. And yet these amazing kids, they went on and they did it. But with the Downbusters raid, eventually this extraordinary operation, they did half succeed. They broke the Mona, they broke the Ada, they failed to break the Sorbu. But um, it cost eight aircraft lost uh, out of 19 and a couple more which turned turned back at the beginning. So it cost half the aircraft which actually attacked. And I mean, that was terrifying. That was nearly a 50% loss rate among the aircraft that attacked. And everybody knew you couldn't run an operation like that very often. And in fact, very interesting that after the dams raid, that um, when they were recruiting to bring 617 Squadron back up to strength because they decided to keep it in being a special operation, they had a lot of trouble finding volunteers to come because everybody knew that the casualties had been frightful and they thought, if we're going to have any more operations like this, this is not a place you want to be. And it's just an astounding business. I think one point I I very much emphasise, which I think is important, in all my books, I try to focus on the things that other people haven't written about. And because they failed to break the Sulpi Dam, not much is normally made of that. But those pilots and their crews, they flew over the Sulpi again and again, making nine or ten runs again and again um, to try and figure out how to make the sort of approach that gave them a chance of dropping the bomber. They were over, overhead for between 20 and 40 minutes. Well, all that time, if the Germans had been awake, which amazingly they weren't, they could have vectored night fighters there. All it needed was somebody awake in the village beside the Sorpi to, to ring up um, German home defence and say, look, we've got this bomber circling round and round and round and to scramble fighters. Well, miraculously, they didn't do it. But, of course, the 617 crew, they had no way of knowing that. And the d- dedication with which they kept going round and round until, in the case of Joe McCarthy, the one American on the trip, that he dropped his bomb, I think, on the 10th or 11th run. Um, Well, of course, (laughs) you know, not surprising that one or two on the crew was saying in the intercom, can we just get this effing bomb out of here? Because, and what one always has to remember about um, both what makes bomber war unusual and like naval war, if you're a soldier, then you have some personal choice whether to be brave in a battle. And if you don't like the look of it, as many soldiers didn't, then you throw yourself flat and you put your hands over your ears and you you hope somebody else will finish the attack or whatever. But if you're a member of a bomber crew or of a warship crew and your captain decides to be brave, you've got to go with him all the way. And I speculate 
that Guy Gibson, who astoundingly flew round the Mona, supporting his other crew's attacks, he went round about four or five times in the end. And I can't help suspecting there must have been more than one member of his crew who were muttering and blinding under their breath and thinking, well, it's all right for him if he wants to win a VC, but what about us, poor bastards, that to do this, it was absolutely right to give him the VC because the line is always heroism beyond the call of duty. And there he'd flown. He'd flown once over, um, over the reservoir to take a look at it. Then he flew again to drop his own bomb, which failed to make a breach. And then he did it um, twice more, um, supporting other crews making their attacks. Um, and then, of course, he flew to the Ada um, to direct the attack on the Ada. And it was awesome. I, I find it so moving that I've written so much about war. But um, I can never forget how lucky those of us who've lived into old age. And these kids, so many of them did when they were very young. And they knew, they knew how dangerous what they were being asked to do was. And yet they went ahead and they did it. And it's an extraordinary business. And, and you can sometimes, with some historic episodes, you can say, well, hang on, was this really so heroic? Was this really so remarkable? I think the Dam's Raid will continue to be discussed and marveled at till the end of time. It's a quite extraordinary um, story. But another thing I tried to do in my book, when we grew up, we all thought of this. One of the things that seemed wonderful about the Dam's Raid is it was victimless, apart from the 53 aircrew who, who were lost uh, carrying out the attack, that um, it seemed as if all you'd done was you, you knocked down some huge concrete structures in the middle of Germany. But, of course, um, somewhere between 12 and 1,400 people, half of them female slave labourers, Poles and Russians, um, and many more French and other um, male prisoners of war, were drowned in this terrifying, what the Germans call the Mona catastrophe. And it was a catastrophe because you suddenly have hundreds of millions of tonnes of water being suddenly unleashed, and this pours down the valley, and it creates what I've called a biblical catastrophe. And the stories, I mean, I've devoted a whole chapter to the stories of what happened to people. When you suddenly get a wave of water, 40 feet high, 40 feet high, smashing through, tearing down houses, you had whole houses being borne down the flood, and the flood continued, it, it drove on for, 100 miles um, below the Mona. And the Ada, mostly flooded agricultural land, didn't kill ne nearly so many people. But you can, if you want to take the ruthless view, you can say, well, this was a price the German people had to pay for Hitler. You can say they um, had supported Hitler. They were fighting for Hitler until 1945. Um, this is the sort of stuff that happens. Plenty of British people have been killed, British civilians, men, women, and children. But it was still... It's still a terrifying story, and we have to see that other half of it, it seems to me, in the 21st century. It's not enough just to say, whoops, didn't we do brilliantly well? Um, wasn't it wonderful, gee whiz? We have to also say that this inflicted a terrible, terrible human disaster, and we have to recognize the human disaster, even if this doesn't negate the courage of the people. And oddly enough, Guy Gibson was one of the people, age 24, I don't know of any senior RAF officer who ever expressed regret about the Downs Raid or ever expressed many moral scruples about all the people who were killed in the burning of the cities. Guy Gibson, he said, 
how much he regretted that the dam wardens had not alerted the people below the dams, that so many people had been drowned. And it caused him to worry and to write in his memoir, which was completed just before he was killed in 1944, Enemy Coast Ahead. He wrote about how troubled he'd been. And he said that when one or two of his crew on the way home from the dam said on the intercom, they were making one or two pretty callous remarks about all those people being drowned as if they didn't care. And Guy Gibson said he felt very uncomfortable about this. And uh, and he used the phrase, nobody can like killing innocent people and it, we don't want to be on a level with himless people. And I find it very moving. He also, another thing very remarkable about Guy Gibson, for all his courage, he had grave doubts about how effective the bomber offensive was. He'd flown over Germany all those times. And yet he said repeatedly and wrote in Enemy Coast Ahead, he said, well, of course, we're all supposed to subscribe to the doctrine that bombing alone can win the war. But he said again and again, I don't believe that. He said, yes, it'll weaken Germany. But he said, I'm convinced there will have to be a D-Day, a land invasion. I'm convinced bombing can't win the war. And this, of course, was why it would be unfair to say Gibson was disgraced. But he was, he was never promoted after the dams rape, even though he got the VC, that Bomber Harris, um, the pretty brutal commander-in-chief, of Bomber Command, who'd never believed in the dams raid all along. And Bomber Harris never forgave Gibson for the rude remarks he made about bombing, first of all, when he went on a trip to America with Winston Churchill, and then afterwards in his memoir. And he was very unforgiving. And he recorded, Harris recorded, when there was talk of sending another great bomber pilot, Leonard Cheshire, to America on a propaganda tour. And Harris vetoed it. He said, after the way they spoiled young Gibson, I'm not having it. And Harris behaved, I've called Harris in the book, the wicked fairy of chastise. He had never believed in the operation before beforehand. He wanted all his aircraft committed to, uh, to bombing cities. And he wrote repeatedly after the dam's raid that he said, we were all told that if the Mona Dam could be broken, it was going to immobilized German industry. He said, I've seen nothing in the intelligence reports to suggest that this was other than just a spectacular. But Harris made sure that he got most of the public credit for the raid. And all the publicity after the raid, all the newspaper stuff, it all talked about another triumph for Sir Arthur Harris's bomber command and so on. So I think Harris behaved pretty cynically. He did everything in his power to make sure that Operation Chastise never happened. But when it was obvious that Portal was going to insist that it did. Then he got close. He was in all the photographs with Guy Gibson and after the raid and so on. And he made jolly sure his publicity stuff that he was described as the sort of presiding genius of Chastise. And then after that, he said, well, I think the whole thing's been a waste of time. Coming up on the History Extra podcast. This is often true, as I've learned in all my books, of heroes, that the men who have to serve under them, they think, well, it's all right for him if he wants to win a VC, but what about us? We want to survive. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. There's something you've alluded to earlier, it's the fact that they didn't destroy the Sorpi. And, and so overall, what impact did the dams raid have on the German war machine? It had a tremendous shock effect that first the Nazi authorities tried to conceal what had happened. But rumours, because in the absence of hard information, rumours swept Germany that 50,000 people had been drowned, which in fact was nothing like that number. And at first, Speer, um, Albert Speer, Hitler's armament chief was woken up in the middle of the night to be told about the breaking of the motor. And he, at first light, flew over the area and then landed nearby. And at first, he was absolutely horrified. Um, and he thought this was going to be a complete disaster. But he was amazed how quickly production was restored. It made an incredible mess, and it had killed all these wretched people. And it was certainly a terrific psychological blow but its impact on German industry was very limited. I would still say that it was worth it because it gave a terrific boost to the morale of the British people. It terrifically raised the standing of um, the British in the eyes of the Americans. And the Americans in 1942-43, they formed a very low opinion of British war-making powers. And the American newspapers, which I quote in the book, a whole succession of American newspapers and broadcasters, they said this is an incredible triumph for um, the Royal Air Force, which has sent the prestige of British airmen soaring in American eyes. And in war, this sort of military theatre, it matters, it counts. And so its strategic impact was almost nil in the sort of grand scheme of things. But it's Propaganda impact was terrific, and I think on that basis it was worth it. Of course, there was one huge, not irony, but huge, another huge mistake made by Harris, partly because Harris thought the whole thing was ridiculous anyway. After the moment of the age had been broken, through the whole summer of 1943, there was a vast edifice of wooden scaffolding up in front of the moment of the age. And Harris unbelievably in Spare's eyes. Spare was dreading. He thought any night the RAF must launch a conventional bombing raid, not another raid, but just an ordinary raid of reasonable accuracy from 20,000 feet. And you only had to be reasonably accurate. And this great cat's cradle of, of wooden scaffolding would just come tumbling down and, and wreck it. 
that the RAF made no attempt to break the down. And I'm quite sure in my mind it was because, first of all, Harrison never believed in the whole thing anyway and didn't want to waste any more energy on it. And even Portal, he'd seen the intelligence reports and the ultra decrypts, which showed that the impact on German industry had been quite limited. So he didn't put the arm on Harris to stage a conventional attack. But actually, Speer made play. If they'd wrecked the repair work, as they could have done, then it could have led to serious trouble. If when the winter rains started, or the autumn rains in September, that the Mona had still been unrepaired, then there could have been serious downstream problems. As it was, the Mona and the Ada were both operational again by September when the autumn rains came. And uh, that winter, they were doing the business again for German industry. And that was completely unnecessary. So I think one of the great mistakes after the huge sacrifices and the huge efforts made by Barnes Wallace, made by 617 Squadron, not to have launched a raid to follow up to um, exploit the success was a huge mistake. But uh, funnily enough, when I wrote my first big book about all this, Bomber Command, back in 1979, and I interviewed Barnes Wallace, and he then raised with me, he said to me, the big mistake was not to have launched a follow-up raid. And then I interviewed Sir Arthur Harris at great length, and I put this point to Harris, and he said, any operation deserving of the Victoria Cross is by its nature unfit to be repeated. Now, he was right as far as it went, that as the Germans had put up all these balloon cables and flat guns and searchlights, you couldn't ever do another of these low-level bouncing bomb raids. That was the only raid of the war for which upkeep the bouncing bombs used. But um, you could have done the conventional raid, and that was a huge mistake. In those days, where I was very lucky, back in 77, 78, I interviewed a lot of the people who were closely involved with the Dam's raid. Um, Sir Rave Cochran, who commanded five groups, and Mickey Martin, who was one of the pilots, and Leonard Cheshire, who later commanded 617 Squad. And I learned a lot, which has been useful for this book. I just remember the shock I got, having grown up thinking of Guy Gibson as one of my heroes. And I met an aircrew, a guy who'd been a gunner, who'd served under Gibson. And I said, what was he like? And he said, oh, we hated him. He said he was... Um, a sort of little bugger who was always jumping out from behind a hut and telling you your buttons were undone. And he was a very tough disciplinarian and very unforgiving. And his crews on the whole, most people didn't like him. They respected him boundlessly, but they didn't like him. But this is often true, as I've learned in all my books, of heroes, that the men who have to serve under them, they think, well, it's all right for him if he wants to win a VC, but what about us? We want to survive. I found a, an interview with a woman who'd been Gibson's driver at, at Scampton in 617 Squadron, and she said he wasn't well-liked, I'm afraid. And he always treated underlings rather badly after this great tragedy the night before the raid, or great tragedy for Gibson, when his beloved dog was killed by a passing car. And he marched into the um, hangar workshops, and he told an airman to make a coffin for nigger. Well, of course, the airman had no idea of what they were going to do that night or probably he'd have been more sympathetic. But he said, no. He said, that's nothing to do with my job. He said, I'm not going to have anything to do with it. And they had a terrific row, and the airman wouldn't back down, and Gibson stomped out without his coffin. Gibson did not come well out of this story. But if you know the full story of his life and the terrible sadness and melancholy and the loneliness of this guy, then when you think of the remarkable things he did, of course, your heart goes out to him. 
What kind of reaction did these men get when they returned from the Dam Busters raid? Were they heroes for life? Oh, they became, for days and weeks afterwards, nobody who was from 617 Squadron could buy a drink or um, pay for a taxi or anything else. I mean, they were they were idolised. A lot of them, they, they just couldn't believe the treatment they got. They were, But they deserved to be idolised because they they had done something so remarkable. And, of course, during the war... Barnes Wallace uh, was the one who didn't get the recognition because security was very tight around him. And everybody, his, his wife wrote a very hasty letter, which I quoted to um, a friend saying, no account must anybody mention that Barnes has been involved with this bombs thing because the Amnesty are really scared that, um, that it's going to be a real security problem. And Barnes Wallace didn't become famous until 1955, when his part was played by Michael Redgrave in the great movie. How much do you think our, our modern view of the Danbusters raid is actually shaped more by the film than the history itself? Oh, um, I've said in the, the beginning of the book that we all think we know the Danbusters story, but most of what we think we know is wrong because it's so much influenced by the movie. And it's always the way that um, it's a great movie. I mean, it's the most popular British war movie of all time, and deservedly so. And you still, I mean, the noise of those. When I was writing Bomb Command, the RAF took me up in there, one surviving Lancaster. And I'll never forget that experience. It's that wonderful noise of those four Rolls-Royce Merlin engines, like a battery of gigantic lawnmowers. And I sat in the um, rear turret, because I'm rather tall, with my bottom sticking out. I couldn't get the hold of myself into the rear turret. And we had a Spitfire and Hurricane flying with us. And they made passes at me to show me what a fighter looked like approaching the rear turret. So the scenes, even now, when I see those scenes of the Lancasters taking off and landing in the movie, it's still very moving. But the portrayal of most, most of the characters, of course, they were quite a lot different from what they were. And the story was, it wasn't a story of Barnes Wallace fighting a lone battle against an unthinking bureaucracy. What was actually remarkable was in the middle of a war of national survival when resources were very scared, that Britain's warlords supported um, this amazing venture, supported the creation of 617 Squadron, and the only person who really opposed it was Bomber Harris. But the fact that Portal and the Air Ministry and all the rest of it, they went along with all this stuff, um, because it did sound pretty wild. I mean, if, you, if you'd heard, if you didn't know that it worked, the whole idea of bouncing a four-and-a-half-ton depth charge across the water to the dam. It sounded absolutely crazy. That was Sir Max Hastings. Chastise, The Dambuster Story, 1943, is out now, published by William Collins. And you can read an edit of this interview in the October issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now with the Crusades on the cover. Plus, you can hear Max in person at our History Weekend event in Winchester this November. Find out more details and purchase tickets at historyextra.com forward slash events. And that is it for today. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Ewart and Jack Bateman. We'll return on Monday when Daisy Dunn will be heading back to the Roman era. Hold up. 